take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 through 30. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, yeah, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full of assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye Shall he be thought worthy, who hath drawn underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? We know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Today I want to preach on titled Necessity. Of faithfulness to the assembly. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to meet together here tonight. Thank you, Father, for the word of God, which we can have and hold and study and show ourselves approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray, Father, that you help me to rightly divide thy truth tonight. Thank you also for this church this assembly. Father, I pray you should help us to be faithful, to be a church that pleases and honors you, that gives reverence to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So, Lord, just speak to our hearts, encourage us, help me as I preach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as, as New Testament churches... We have it better than any of those before us. In fact, the key word of Hebrews is better. Everything in the New Testament, or in this age in which we're living, this we call it the church age, or the age of grace, it's the age of churches, is better than the law. We have a better covenant. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better high priest. And I'm telling you, the church is better than being under the economy of the law. 
And so, really, we are privileged to live in this age. Like I say, we have it better than any that were before us. So, as we think about, you know, this chapter is, is this passage here is about, talks about the necessity or the privileges we have as New Testament Christians and the necessity of faithfulness to the assembly. So, I want to think about that tonight. First of all, we have liberty to enter the holiest. Emphasize that word holiest by the blood of Jesus. Verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness, enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Again, that word holiest means the holiest of all. You know, the temple was considered a holy place. And there were certain parts of the temple, or the tabernacle, which was before it, you know, the temple replaced the tabernacle. There was one part of that that only the priest could go into. And then there was another part where only the high priest could go once a year. And that without blood. Not without blood. But we have something better than that. That wasn't the holiest place in heaven and earth. Of course, Jesus entered into the holiest of all in heaven. He entered the, the holy place in heaven. But I, I really believe that when he's talking about the holiest here, he's talking about the church in its context. Notice verse, uh, notice verse uh, 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. What's the house of God? What does Timothy tell us the house of God is? It's the church. The, 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 the pillar of the ground and truth. It's the church. So I would say of any place on earth you can be, the church, the assembly, is the holiest of all. It's the holiest of all. You In Hebrews 9, verse 8, it says the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So until, until the Lord offered himself and he was finished with the tabernacle and the temple worship, the way into the holiest in the church was not yet made known. Now think about what Ephesians 2.6 says. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, the church is a heavenly assembly with heavenly promises. In fact, our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. So in a real sense, you might say, Lighthouse Baptist Church is seated in the heavenlies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, Ephesians 1.3, Paul said again, writing the church of heaven, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. John 3.12, Jesus telling Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? What was he talking to him about? He was talking about, to him about being born again. About entering into, the, entering into the kingdom of God. Those are things, by the way, you do while you're on earth. 
He was talking about the new birth, new birth, the gospel of the kingdom. And of course, through the gospel, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, so we have liberty. Notice it says boldness, confidence, assurance that we can enter into the assembly. Secondly, not only do we have liberty, we have an eternal, ever-present high priest. Notice verse 21, it says, And having an high priest over the house of God. Of course, the house of, which is what? The house of God. Well, Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tear long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, again, in the Old Testament times, you know, as, as I mentioned, we have a better high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament continued not by reason of infirmity. In fact, the, I think the, the age for a high priest was 30 to 50, I think, something like that. And, and of course, they got old and they died. We have an eternal high priest. You know, the high priest, his, you know, he represented God to the people. He was the mediator, so to speak. And, and Timothy tells us we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But our high priest, our eternal high priest, is ever-present. And there's a special presence in his church. You know, Matthew 18.20 says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He's talking there about a church. And then he expounds on that, on that in Revelation 1. Go to Revelation chapter 1 and verses 10 through 20. Revelation 1, verses 10 through 20. <clears throat> Let's start at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation... In the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am a mouth, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in the book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, and saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. For the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. 
And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So, here you have the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And he says, verse 20 tells us, that the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. They're the churches. And, and so, as our high priest, he's walking in the midst of our churches. No, he's walking in the midst of our church. And he says he has eyes. Do you, ever look, do you ever have somebody look at you and you feel like they look right through you? You know, the Lord's walking around. Looking you over. Checking your spiritual temperature. He knows what the thoughts of our heart. He knows everything about us. You know, he... And he does that. You know, as a high priest, one of the things a high priest, one of his jobs was, he had that, that job of inspecting and examining the sacrifices that were brought to the temple. Remember in Malachi, I was preaching through Malachi here months back, what, the, 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 the people were bringing defiled sacrifices. And the priests were allowing it. You see, it was their job to say, no, that's not acceptable. That's unacceptable. And see, the Lord is in the midst of our church, and he's examining our hearts. And so he says, let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart. You know, you think about that. Is it any wonder that people feared to join the church in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 13? Of course, the Lord, in Acts chapter 5, you have the, the death of who? Ananias and Sapphira. God judged a defiling duo. And then it says in verse 13, And, the, and of the rest, durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. You know what I think that means? There was no flippant church members. Half in, half out kind of church members at the church of Jerusalem then. But to the writing of this book, there is. So we have this eternal high priest. You know, not only is he inspecting us, but he secures us. Notice verses 22 and 23 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. Uh, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without, favor, uh, without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. So we need to, we need to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
because he is an eternal high priest. He, his, his sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice for us. And he has sanctified forever. Notice verse 10 and 14. It says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 says, for by one offering he has sanctified forever them that are sanctified. So he encourages us to draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith. See, we have this eternal, ever-present high priest. Thirdly, we have the assurance of growth. Assurance of growth. Well, just several things here. First of all, by being provoked. Now, look at verse 24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Do you know what provoke means? I looked that word up. It means to incite, to irritate. Did you ever get irritated by a service? Don't answer that. But when you're under conviction, is it sometimes not irritating? Yeah, it is. It's only used one other time in the Bible, uh, actually twice, in the same verse. In Acts 15, 39, it says, and the contention, in other words, the irritation, the provoking, um, was so sharp, in other words, it was so inciting and irritating between them that they departed asunder from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed him to Cyprus. So he's talking there about the, the contention between Paul and Barnabas or whether they take John Mark with them again on their second missionary journey. And it was so sharp. It was such an irritant that they separated. Yeah, there'd be a lot of discussion about who's right and who's wrong in that. But, you know, I, I would say this. Growth is sometimes painful. Did you ever have growing pains growing up? You have pain for seeming no reason, and they call them growing pains. You know. Um, you know, and as we grow, sometimes it's not just adding something to my life, but it's cutting something out. And many times that's painful. Cutting something out of my life. I mean, do you think this contention between Paul and Barnabas was painful? Yeah, it was. But you know what? This is my opinion. I believe God allowed this to advance missionary work. Say, so why do you say that? Well, now there's two teams. This happened in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. Now, people say you never heard from Barnabas again. That's not true. Paul goes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey after he and Barnabas split up. And then when Paul writes to Corinth, he says this, or only, or I only, or Barnabas, 
have we not power to forbear working? I take from that that Barnabas is still in the ministry. Still missionary work. And then later on, remember, this, this contention was over Mark, and later on Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11 and says, uh, only Luke was with me. Take Mark and bring him with me. For he is profitable for me for the ministry. You see, sometimes, sometimes we need provoked. God, you know, you think about it. In Acts chapter, uh, Acts, in the early book of the, uh, part of the book of Acts, God had to provoke the church at Jerusalem to get them, really, to, to carry out what he had commanded them to do. It, persecution caused them to scatter and go everywhere preaching the gospel. In Galatians 2.11, there's another contentious incident. Uh, Paul writing to, church, uh, to the folks at Galatia, it wasn't a church, it was a region. It says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So sometimes, sometimes, you know, we are, we grow by being provoked. And of course it says to, that we are provoked unto love and good works. You know, we don't provoke someone to send them away. <laughs> we provoke them to get them to do right. The second thing here he talks about is by exhorting one another. Notice verse 24. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word exhort means to call to one side, to call for, to summon, uh, to address, speak to, uh, which may be done in a way of exhortation or entreaty. That's, that's I think, Strong's definition. Comfort and instruction. So, so we are to exhort one another. Exhortation. That's what I'm doing right now. Exhortation. Um, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3. You know, this is, of course, is mainly done through preaching, teaching, so Sunday school, church services, but, but we can also exhort one another just by our conversation. But notice here in Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 16, Paul says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ with passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with with all the fullness of God. You see, it's God's desire that we comprehend His love that passeth knowledge. And the word comprehend means to understand or to take hold of. 
don't know if you've ever said this to somebody you're trying to explain something and you say, comprehendo? I don't think that's Spanish, but, you know, I've used that. You comprehendo? Yeah. Uh, you might say, you know what I'm talking about? See, God wants us to know what he's talking about. God wants us to understand the fullness, the length, breadth, depth, height, the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. How do we do that? Well, we're chapter four. He, he tells us in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, in Ephesus, or in Ephesians, Paul uses two metaphors to describe the church. Uh, in chapter 2, he talks about a building. And then here he talks about a body. Um, both are good metaphors. You know, I, I, I think about a building. Um... You know, I grew up around the Amish. And something that's very interesting to watch, to see, is an Amish barn raising. I mean, there may be several hundred men building a big barn, you know, like a Pennsylvania barn. You don't see too many of them kind of around here. But, you know, it's a big, big barn. And, and they're just all over the place like bees. Now, of course, with the modern machinery, it isn't quite the same. But, but Dad used to tell me about how, you know, you ever, you ever, was you ever in a pin and mortise barn? You ever see one? Okay. And what they do is they have, a, they have what they call mortise. So they would make a log, and at the end of it, they would cut a portion of it out so that there might be a piece stick out of the log, end of the log, maybe about this far, about that big, just about rectangular shape like that. And then halfway in the middle of that, there's a hole. About that big. And then the log that that mortise goes into has a notch cut into that to receive it. And then they drive a pin, a wooden pin about that long, in it. Our barn in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and was a, was, a, was a pin and mortise barn. And Dad said they would make all those logs beforehand. Didn't have time to make them today. Barn raising, you had to have them all prepared. You're talking about a two-story barn, fifty feet high to the peak, and there's 
probably, I don't know, how many logs in one of those things? Lots of them, I can tell you that. I used to walk across them. About that wide. Two stories up. Uh, that was why I was younger and foolish. But anyway, so they, 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 would, they would make all that, and it was laid out on the ground, and they would, then, then on the day of the barn raising, they'd put it all together. And it just fit like hand glove on a, in a hand. You see, that's the way the church is supposed to be. Notice here again in verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in, every, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So, you know, I would say this, that it is impossible for anyone to come to Christian maturity without faithfulness in the New Testament church. With a pastor. Now, I say that for two reasons. Number one, the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it. Again, Ephesians 4, right here. The body is to edify itself. And he gave some apostles, prophets, of course, those who have passed off the scene, evangelists as missionaries, and some pastors and teachers. And, of course, Hebrews, in Hebrews, you know, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews, which I believe was Paul, and I think he was writing to the church at Jerusalem, which was forsaking the assembly. They were in serious trouble because they were forsaking the assembly. And he said this in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of your conversation. Then again, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So if you don't heed the instruction given in the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, it's going to be unprofitable for you. Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseas, to feed the, flock, the church of God, which has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. What happens to an unattended flock? Well, Ezekiel tells us very, very well what happens to an unattended flock. Ezekiel 34, 5 says, And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. And look here in Ephesians 4, in verse... 14, he says, you know, he given these offices to the church for the perfecting of the saints. And then verse 14 says this, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and in cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So, God gave the church, and God gave pastors and teachers to perfect and to protect, to feed the sheep, 
so they would walk in the commandments of God. So they'd obey the word of God. You know, Numbers 27, 15 to 17, again, Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, which may go in before them, which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. So, we understand the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, the word pillar there means a prop or a support. The word ground has the idea of the basis for or the foundation of. So, the church is the foundation it's the support of all truth. What does Romans ten seventeen say? Faith cometh by, you know, faith is belief, right? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then he goes on in that, and, and prior to that, those verses he says, but how should they hear without a what? Preacher. So, you know, it, again, I would say it's impossible for anyone to come to Christian maturity without faithfulness in New Testament church. And again, the Bible teaches it, and, and, I, and also I would add to that, experience proves it. But go to Ephesians chapter 3. Well, you may be there, but Ephesians 3, there's an interesting verse I want you to, want you to think about. As you think about the church and the importance of the church. Ephesians 3 and verse 10 says this. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. I used to scratch my head and say, what in the world is Paul trying to tell the church at Ephesus? To the intent that now under the principalities and powers, what's that talking about? It's talking about angelic beings, spirit beings in heaven. Might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. David Sorensen in his commentary said this, and I quote, The thought is that even the angelic leadership in high places would understand through the church God's diverse wisdom. What an amazing thought. The church... The mystery hid from ages past is God's chosen vehicle for the propagation of the truth, not only here on earth, but also for angels. It may be that angels in heaven could not understand the work of Christ or the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. The church is the vehicle of such understanding even for them. Implicit also is that the church is the primary body for the transmission and preservation of of the scripture, the manifold wisdom of God, unquote. I agree with it. You know, God has given to the church. In fact, Peter tells us that he's talking about this mystery. He said the angels desired to look into it. In other words, they didn't understand it. But see, the church, churches are making this known 
even to principalities and powers in heavenly places. And it's church's responsibility. The church is responsible is the is the body or bodies for the transmission of and the preservation of scriptures. Who has preserved the word of God down through the ages? It's been the churches. The problem we're getting into is we're letting the the the, the theologians and the seminarians and the and and, uh, and all these other entities do it for us. It's causing us a lot of problems. No, it's the church. And so, we, we see here the importance or the necessity of a New Testament church for growth. We want to grow in our Christian life to maturity. There's no alternative. In fact, there's a surety of judgment or the neglect of it. Notice verse 26. Hebrews 10, verse 26. says this, For if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing hath done despite under the spirit of grace. We know him that hath said vengeance belongeth unto me I will recompense saith the Lord and again the Lord shall judge his people. You know there is no other way for God to equip you and I to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. But through his church. That is what he's telling us here. And to turn away from God's design, to turn away is to consider the Lord who's walking around in the midst of a church. It's to consider him of little worth. Of little value. He says it's to despise the spirit of grace. See, really what it is, is is to say, yeah, I don't think I'll go to church today. You know what you're saying? Jesus Christ is important. That's what you're saying. I can take him or leave him. Word's not important. Yeah, I don't like the Spirit of God making me uncomfortable. By the way, the Word of God is taught... It's like a sharp two-edged sword, is it not? It's going to hurt sometimes. It's also like the balm of Gilead. It brings healing. If we heed it. I'm going to do my own thing. You know what? You end up without help. 
go to Psalms chapter 73. <clears throat> Psalms chapter 73. In Psalm 73, we have an example of a man who almost turned away. Psalm 73. Now I realize it's Old Testament. This is not church, but he's talking about the temple here. But the principle is the same. You know, those that turned away from the the temple, there was no alternative. There was no alternative for God's design in the Old Testament. It was the temple. In fact, that's why God judged Israel and Judah, because they eventually they turned away. Israel's sin was they made the golden calves and didn't worship at Jerusalem. Uh, Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are clean heart. But as for me, notice, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Their pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and the waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who, notice, prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Hey, do you ever feel like that? Now, don't look at me, look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. You know, we've all been there. Sometimes we look at the people of the world and we say, Man, must be nice. But you know what we're looking through? rose-colored glasses when we do that. We're not looking at the whole picture. He says in verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of the children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. Think about it. They're in a slippery place. They're like on a, on a, 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 a bank, of a, of a slippery bank of a, of, a, of a roaring river. They're on that slippery bank. Just, just all, and all it's going to take is the right circumstance, and they're going to slide right in and perish. Verse 19, how are they brought unto desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Where do you get God's counsel? And afterward, receive me to glory. You see, if we forsake God's church, there's sure judgment. You think about it. Think about Judas. 
Judas turned away from the Lord's church. And what did Jesus say about Judas? It had been better for him not to have been born. Better not to have been born. You see, we must not underestimate the importance that God gives to his church. We must not forsake it. We must not neglect it. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. God wants us to grow. God wants us to faith, be faithful. God has made it possible for us to be overcomers in this world. But to do that, you notice three times, there's, there's a phrase three times in this passage. Let us, let us, let us. Let us draw near full assurance of faith let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and let us hold fast it's up to us we must choose to obey the Lord submit ourselves to him and be faithful see the importance of assembling together that we might know His blessing. We know, know the privileges of entering into the holiest and walking with the Lord and know His presence in our midst. Let's pray.